Lord, this place is often referred to as the sacred desk because it is the place where we open the Bible and we teach and, and preach to the people of God, the Word of God. And Lord, we have before us a very sobering text today. It's one that requires deep thought, serious seriousness. And I pray, Lord, we, we feel insufficient for this, but ask for your sufficiency and help. And I pray for the people that are here. Lord, I love them. I know you love them so much more. I pray, Lord, that today what they need, they would receive from the attention to the text of the Bible today. Help me know what to say and what not to say. Lord, help me to make clear what ought to make clear. And we just ask for your help. Lord, we do thank you again for for Sue and what you've done to send her on her way, for the Bresnoff family and your kindness that you expressed to them in the birth of Everlyn, Sarah. So thankful to you, Lord. I know there are folks here with a heavy heart today because they have loved ones that are very sick or some that have passed. And Lord, I pray your special comfort to them and help to them. Thank you that we could assemble here on the Lord's Day, that we'd be able to sing these beautiful songs of the faith and that our hearts have been encouraged and reminded about who you are. And Lord, thank you for your word, the Bible. God, we love it so much. We're so grateful for it. I pray that you would fill us with a spirit of great reverence, that never there would be a blasphemous word or a thoughtless or careless word that's uttered from our lips because we know that a good person out of the abundance of their heart brings forth good things. But an evil person out of their heart, that treasure of their heart, brings forth evil things and by our words will be condemned. So we take that very seriously this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our text is Matthew chapter 12, and I'm going to read you Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Jumping into the middle of really a, a, a kind of unit of thought, and it's important that we do that because it's a big, long unit of thought, and this is a very sobering text. Here's what it says. Jesus is speaking now, and he's primarily addressing the religious leaders of the day who had rejected him. When he said, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. In 2007, there was, by the Rational Response Squad, group on the internet called themselves the Rational Response Squad, a challenge that was given to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The Rational Response Squad said, we want your soul. We want you to record a short message on YouTube damning yourself to hell. You could damn yourself to hell, but somewhere in the video you must say, I deny the Holy Spirit. And then they quoted this passage, which is in all the synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke, by the words of Jesus himself. This warning about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so they, the rational response squad said, damn yourself to hell and use this phrase, I deny the Holy Spirit. Hundreds of people then responded, including some, a handful of celebrities, but most of them were just young people. Many of them not even out of their teens. In the, in the section of the website, the frequently asked questions someone said, are you targeting young people? And they said, yeah, yes we are. Because the most vulnerable 
people to religious indoctrination are young people. Now the question would be, have these people actually committed the unpardonable sin for which there is no forgiveness? I got a call from a, a woman in another state, and uh, she sent me a little note. Can I talk with you? I need counsel. I need to talk with a pastor. I said, yes. It was my day off. I was home. I had time. I, she called me, and for about an hour, I sat and talked to this woman from another state because her heart was deeply burdened that she had committed the unpardonable sin, that she had blasphemed God and that she could never be forgiven and that she would never have a place. And over and over again, as I showed her the Scriptures and challenged her with the Scriptures, she could not escape the feeling, the sense that she had committed the unpardonable sin and that she was outside of the circle of God's mercy. So you kind of have, you have two groups of people, really, when you think about it, one group is people who feel like they have sinned so grievously that they're outside the circle of God's mercy and that they can't ever be forgiven. And Satan wants people to feel that condemnation. He wants them to feel that they've sinned so grievously that they have exhausted the mercy of God and that they're outside the possibility of forgiveness. He wants people to feel that way. He's the accuser. On the other hand, you've got people that are callous and unconcerned. They would, even go, they would even openly blaspheme God or blaspheme him. And you work, you live with people, you work with people like this who are so callous and so unconcerned, they don't really care if, there's, if God has mercy or not. They deny the existence of God. And then you come to a passage like this where Jesus warns about a special kind of unforgivable blasphemy. And you have to ask yourself, this is a, a passage that you have to approach with trembling. It's serious. It's not a gloss. It's repeated in the Bible from the lips of Jesus himself. It's a serious matter. To answer this question, I believe that there are many people who Satan has them believing that they're outside of the possibility of God's mercy. And there are people that have sinned in just terrible, grievous ways, and they, maybe they're the only ones who know it. I mean, there are times that all of us have a sense like this. Is it possible that I've just got, gone too far? I'm just beyond God's mercy. I think, for instance, of a woman who has serious confusion in her life, confusion, gender confusion. And I say that, and I use the term carefully. You know, there are people who openly practice homosexuality. These are, these are, are, are people that have gone beyond temptation and have immersed themselves in sinful behaviors. This, this lady... I think of her, and she's a self-identified lesbian, puts a sticker on her car, I'm a lesbian. And yet, at the same time, she has identified herself with a group that will receive her. She's identified herself with a group that says, you can be a part of our group, and we won't judge you, and we'll show you kindness, and you can be a part of our group. But at the same time, she also has an, a tenderness toward the things of the Lord. And I ask myself the question as a minister of the gospel, is it possible that no one has ever able been, ever been able to sufficiently explain to her that there is a place of love and acceptance that where she can be treasured even while she wrestles with the s- sinful temptation of same-sex attraction? Is it possible that is it possible that nobody's ever really been able to explain that adequately to her, that there could be a place 
where people wrestle with every imaginable temptation and yet they can find a place of fellowship among the people of God. I wonder about that. Satan wants that person to feel like there is no way that they could ever be accepted among God's people. That there's no way that they could ever be forgiven. That they're that they're characterized by the temptations that they have, and that the temptations that they have move them beyond God's forgiveness, or that their past sin and failure moves them somehow outside of God's forgiveness. And really it's interesting because in these two verses, you have obviously the main thing is a warning against a special kind of blasphemy, but you also have kind of implied in a very beautiful and powerful way this most amazing offer of mercy. Because notice what Jesus says, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Now that's kind of an aside Jesus is saying that to get to this, but if you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, or I'm warning you that you're in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But in saying that, what does he say first? He says something remarkable. He says something incredible. And here you have the nature of God. It's two of the very major characteristics of God expressed in this beautiful symmetry and balance. You have the mercy of God, but you have the justice of God. You have God's great grace and mercy and His willingness to forgive and His eagerness to forgive, but you also have an expression of His holiness and His righteousness and His justice, and both of them are true about God. That's one of the things that makes God so beautiful. It's because the perfect balance, the perfect symmetry of attributes. That's the way He is. And what's interesting is the person that's over here, and they feel like, sorry for you that are sitting on this side today, but the person over here who feels like they're outside of the light of God's mercy all they ever hear are passages and messages of condemnation because they're wired to hear that and Satan wants them to hear that part. And people over here that are callous and have disregard for the things of the Lord, all they ever hear are messages of love and, and mercy and acceptance. And this group needs to hear that message and this group needs to hear that message. Does that make sense? And today we might have people here in both groups. You might be callous and you've had disregard for the things of the Lord and you had great light and your parents have taught you things or others have taught you things or you're married to a believer or, or you kind of, you've heard a lot and you've heard, you, there's a lot you know, you just had a lot of light and yet you're unconcerned and even to the point where there's a willfulness about you where you want to do what you want to do and you don't want God or anybody else telling you what you're going to do and this could be a great danger, this and you say that you, you see the mercy of God, but I would call you to recognize His justice and His righteousness and His wrath. But there may be others and maybe many of you that think, how could God ever accept me because I know the failures I've had? Maybe even this week some of you are like, I've failed this week and here I am. I feel like a hypocrite sitting here with a Bible on my lap in church and yet God knows my heart and He knows the darkness of my heart and He knows my sin. Then I have a word for you. God is... Care wants to be characterized by mercy and by grace and by forgiveness for his mercies are new every morning and his mercy endures forever. So he says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Even verse 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. It is possible to speak against Jesus and yet to find forgiveness. How do we know this is true? Well, because Jesus said it right there. That'd be one reason we know it's true. 
but also because we have examples in the Bible of people that were forgiven of blasphemy. How about the people who crucified Jesus? I mean, what more blasphemous act could there be than you're nailing the hands and feet of the Son of God to the cross? And yet, what did he say on the cross? Father, he said, forgive them. And forgiveness was a real possibility to them. There was the one crucified with Jesus. Two of them were speaking against him and blasphemy. And one of them came to repentance and he went to heaven. He didn't go to Sunday school, he didn't go to church, he didn't get baptized. He went to heaven. And though he came out of this speaking against Christ, and yet he was forgiven. What a beautiful picture of his willingness to forgive blasphemers. There's hope for you if you've spoken against God and his people. Paul said of himself that he was a blasphemer. First Timothy chapter 1. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Isn't that sweet? You like that? I'm going to give you the amen parts, and you can, like, you can decide if you want to participate or just enjoy listening, okay? But like, if, I'm going to read that again, and if you want to say amen, that would be an awesome place to be a part of it. Okay, here we go. Are we ready? Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a pure persecutor, insolent man, but I obtained mercy. I, I love that, man. I love that. I love you if you're quiet. I'm just, you know, it's just, we're just working this thing. All right? Because I did it ignorantly in an unbelief, Paul said. I did it ignorantly in an unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant. And the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Ooh, that's awesome, isn't it? Isn't it great? Read your Bible, you find stuff like that. This is Paul saying, I was a blasphemer, and I did it ignorantly in an unbelief, but God in His mercy and His grace... So if you can blaspheme God, and God will overcome your blasphemy with His mercy and His grace, there isn't any dark sin you've committed that He will not willingly forgive. This is our God. You may be sitting here thinking, I couldn't even tell you the sin that I've committed. You tell me it was worse than blasphemy? That's how powerful God's grace is. That's how wonderful His mercy is greater than all of our sin. All of our sin. Now, Stephen... The people that stoned Stephen were blasphemers. Stephen called them out for being blasphemers. And while they stoned him, he cried out, Jesus, forgive them. They could be forgiven. And I believe there were those present who were forgiven. You see that story in Acts chapter 7. And so you have a number of examples. Well, we need to ask the question, what is this unpardonable sin? We often use the phrase, the unpardonable sin. What is it? I don't know how else to deal with this today, but I have just a serious kind of like, the, the best way logically I know how to deal with this is that when I read these two verses, I just have these questions explode in my mind. Are you this way? I would really strongly suggest that when you read the Bible, that you just pepper it with questions and write the questions down because there's something in us that, that kind of flows toward answers. We'll listen to preaching, or we'll read our Bibles, or we'll go to our Sunday school class, and our Sunday school teacher and ABF leader will answer the question by, out of the Bible when you have those questions kind of like late, like in, uh, running in your mind. Well, when I look at this passage, just a ton of questions come to my mind. Uh, I'll give you some examples of the questions. Um, first of all, is blasphemy uh, the unpardonable sin? And we already answered that question, no. Blasphemy is not the unpardonable sin. We just gave you a bunch of examples of people who were forgiven for blasphemy. What is the unpardonable sin? How do we define that? The second, a third question would be, 
is Jesus warning us not to be discerning when people do signs and gifts, right? In other words, if blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when I attribute something to the devil that the Spirit did, then I have to be really, really careful in my discernment unless I say something is from the devil when it's from the Holy Spirit. And therefore, anybody that does kind of some bizarre kind of spiritual practices, I just can't be discerning. Is that what it's saying? Here's another question. Is he implying there's another chance for forgiveness after death? Because in this passage, verse 32, he says, in this life or in the next life. Does that mean in the next life there's a chance of forgiveness? Is there a purgatory or something like that? Can a Christian commit the unpardonable sin? Is that a good question? Is it possible that I, as a Christian, could commit the unpardonable sin? We want to answer that question. Uh, can you get to the point where you want to be saved, but you can't be saved anymore? Is this what Jesus is teaching? Is it possible for a person to want they have a loved one that really wants to be saved, but they've crossed this line with God so they can't be saved and they want to be saved. We'll be answering that question today too. I know you're thinking, we're going to be here a long time. I'm going to talk really fast and you're going to listen really fast. Is it possible in this age to commit the unpardonable sin? Some would say no. Is it possible to commit the unpardonable sin in this age is a question that we're going to try to answer. And is this the same thing that when the Bible talks about a sin unto death? Is it the same thing or is it a different thing? And how do I know if I've committed the unpardonable sin or if somebody's committed the unpardonable sin? And is Jesus just warning them that they may be in danger of committing the unpardonable sin? Or is he just saying to them, you have crossed the line and you have committed the unpardonable sin? These are questions that we want to ask. But before we go there, I want to suggest to you things that are not the unpardonable sin. Blasphemy is pardonable. Thank the Lord. There's pardon for blasphemy. There's pardon for bigamy. There's pardon for homosexuality. The Bible says it. There's pardon for sexual perversions. The Bible says it. There's pardon for fornication. There's pardon for murder. There's pardon for liars. There's pardon for people that struggle with addictions to drugs or drink or food or religious hypocrisy or theft or foolishness. There's pardon for people who have given in over and over again to youthful lust. There's pardon for all sin. That's so fun to say. There's pardon for all of that because that's what Jesus says here. I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Now, let's go through these questions then. What is the unpardonable sin? It is a persistent and willful rejection of Christ after the Holy Spirit has clearly revealed Him to you. And this is the context. A lot of times people talk about, they try to answer questions about the Bible without going and carefully studying the context of the Bible. Listen to Moody Founders Week. How many of you listened to any part or watched any part of Moody Founders Week? Uh, raise your hand up real high. I'm just curious to see this. All right. The, the, that's moved to the head of the class. Yeah. I was watching Mark Bailey, who is the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He was preaching at Moody Founders Week this week. And, and Pastor Bresnan, you'll like this. And you're a graduate of, of Dallas. Here's what he said. He says, Dallas grads are the same as Moody grads. So that would be the, both of us, right? He said, Dallas grads are, are men who preach the Bible with one hand on the text all the time. And if they gesture, they put the other hand on the text. Well, that was very powerful and wonderful and convicting to me. It's like, because what are we saying? Our job is to explain the text of Scripture and to apply the text of Scripture and never to deviate from it, never to stray far from it. And that's what we want to do here. So we look at the context. In other words, what was the context of this? The context was this. Chapter 1 through uh, 11 is Jesus being presented to the nation. It's being presented to the Jewish people as their Messiah, as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, as very God of very God, come in the flesh, born of a virgin, who would rule the earth and bring the kingdom. 
And the people now are officially rejecting him. The ruling religious party of the day is officially rejecting him. And what makes that so pernicious and so wicked and so evil is that the Spirit of God has revealed who Jesus is. The Spirit of God, remember when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit came in the form of a dove and lighted on his head and Jesus healed thousands of people and he taught this wonderful... The Spirit of God had worked and the people willfully following these religious leaders, had willfully rejected who Jesus was. This was a serious, serious, willful sin. This wasn't a sin of ignorance. This was a willful sin. They knew what Jesus did. They knew who Jesus was, but they would not yield to him. And so they openly and overtly attributed the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ to the devil. And this is like crossing a line then with with God. So it's a persistent and willful, blasphemous rejection of Christ after the Holy Spirit has clearly revealed him to you. J.C. Ryle, I think I misquoted myself last Sunday. I said R.C., J.C., let's, for the record, it's J.C. Ryle, Bishop, uh, Church of England. He gave this in a, in a commentary I thought it was helpful. This teaching of Jesus shows the exceeding sinfulness of sins against knowledge. These difficult words of Jesus prove that there are degrees of sin. A lot of people will tell you there are not. That's not true if you read the Bible carefully. Offenses arising from ignorance of the true mission of the Son of God will not be punished so heavily as offenses committed against the noontide light of the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. The brighter the light, the greater the guilt. In other words, what made this so blasphemous is that they sinned against the knowledge that they'd been given by God. And this should be sobering to you if you're here today because, you know, and I'm not being unkind to anyone here. Please don't ever take offense. I say this with a heart of love. Your parents brought you, and so they're exposing you to truth, or you're here with your husband or your wife or a friend, or you're kind of a casual, curious onlooker, and now you're getting exposed to the truth from the Bible. Someone is teaching the Bible, telling you the gospel, There's an enlightenment. There may even be a sense in which that you're drawn to the Lord. And if you continually resist that and then go into blasphemy against that, there is a possibility of crossing a line with God, which you can't go back on. Brings us to another question. Is Jesus condemning discernment here? This is a very important question. Is Jesus saying, I don't want you to... If anybody says, Holy Spirit, you just say, Oh, okay, it was the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to argue. Lois and I had a friend, and we loved her, and she was a nice lady. We liked... Lois did some business with her. It was years ago in a faraway place. And this lady had a kind of an annoying habit. We liked her. Don't, don't, don't be offended for her. But she had this annoying habit. Here's what she would do. Let's say her name was Gertrude. Anybody named Gertrude here? Just checking. Okay. Let's say her name was Gertrude. We'd say, hey, Gertrude, you want to go out for coffee? And she would say, well, the father hasn't allowed me to do that. You're like, oh. You know, I'm kind of cynical. I'm like, did you have a banana phone to God? You just like call him up and you go, you know, I mean, because I love to be guided by the Spirit, but God doesn't like audibly give me that kind of direction. He wants us to study his word and uh, he wants us to be wise based on his word. This gal would like, the father says, I can't do that. The father says, I can't do that. And you got the feeling that she was blaming God on a lot of stuff that she wanted to do. Or blaming God on a lot of stuff that she didn't want to do. The Bible teaches us very clearly that we are to be discerning. 
So Jesus is not saying here, hey, if somebody comes along and they say, hey, this is the Holy Spirit, <laughs> what I'm doing, this bizarre, weird, circus-like behavior is the Holy Spirit, we're, we're supposed to just accept that. Go, well, I don't want to get involved in any kind of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, you know, you kick the old lady in the face. It's literally happened. Okay, I'm not making this up. You kick this elderly lady in the face in church and the Spirit told you to do it and I'm not going to speak against it because I don't want to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't saying that. He isn't saying that. Let me, show, let me show you why. We're commanded to do the following things. We're commanded to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. We're commanded to prove the spirits or test the spirits because there are many false prophets that go out of the world. First John 4, 1 John 4.1. Matthew 24, we're going to see later on that we're to take heed so that no one deceives us. So it's possible to be deceived. Matthew 7, as we already studied, we know there are people that will say, Lord, Lord, then we cast out demons in your name. He's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So we're, we are supposed, we're commanded to be discerning. We're to test those who claim to be the apostles. That's in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2. We're not to be deceived by signs and wonders, even in God's house. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and verses 9 through 12. Revelation says there are false prophets that will deceive the world with great signs. In Revelation 16, it says that demons will work miracles. In Deuteronomy 13, it even talks about miracles coming to pass and not following those who are following other gods in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, it talks about Janus and Jambres who imitated signs, referring back to Exodus chapter 7. In other words, a lot of times the Bible tells us we're supposed to be discerning about when somebody says, this is God. We're like, I don't think so. Because that doesn't line up with what the Bible says. So I have the right not to be judgmental and eager to condemn, but just to say, I'm going to be discerning, and I'm not going to buy that you are speaking for God here or that you're, what you're doing is what God wants you to do, because I am charged by God to be discerning, using the Word of God as the litmus test for everything. So that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that we, can, we commit the unpardonable sin whenever we say that some crazy person doing something crazy is not of God. Now there's another one. Is there a chance for forgiveness after death? Is Jesus implying that I can be forgiven after death? And this is from verse 32 where you might get that idea. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. question then that came to my mind as I was looking at that is, well, would, can people use this phrase to say, see, there will be chances to be forgiven in the age to come? Well, it's interesting. Some people will say, and we'll get into this in just a minute, but some people will say, oh, it's 12. Um, some, people, <laughs> some people will say, um, you know, you knew it was 12, but like me, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's 12. You're like, yeah, I noticed it was 12. Um, you're like, stomach's going, it's 12, it's 12. Somebody told me once, a very wise person, never refer to time when you're in the pulpit. And so I just kind of blew that. So uh, anyway, let me just give you some of this stuff. Is there a chance for forgiveness after death? Now, some would say that this is a special sin, that, that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit could only be committed while Jesus was on earth in this unique setting, and therefore this would be the only chance, unless, of course, it happens again in the kingdom age, in which Jesus again will be upon the earth, and people could reject him and reject the Holy Spirit by rejecting him and attribute his works to the works of the devil. But here's why we know that there's no chance of forgiveness after death. The Bible specifically says so. Like, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, there's a point on a man who wants to die, and then the judgment comes. After that, the judgment. We also know this. That, that some people would teach that there's a purgatory. There's a state where you can go to, and you kind of earn your way forward. And though we respect people, we, we realize that teaching doesn't come out of the Bible because you can't find that teaching anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. As a matter of fact, there's no teaching in the Bible here 
In other words, if Jesus were saying there's a way to be forgiven after death, you would be able to find somewhere in the Bible that teaches that. But you can't find anywhere in the Bible that teaches that. And therefore, we must interpret this as kind of a poetic reference or a poetic device that Jesus is using. You can never be forgiven this. This age, age to come, no forgiveness for that. And so, let me keep moving here real quick. No, is the answer. Is there a chance for forgiveness after death? After death is the judgment. Scriptures don't teach purgatory or a second chance for forgiveness. I just challenge you to be biblical about this. Now, can a Christian commit the unpardonable sin? And the short answer is no. Because a believer, if the Holy Spirit lives, a genuine believer, the Holy Spirit living in them, sealed by the Holy Spirit, under the day of redemption, never to be unsealed. You're not saved by your own righteousness, so you don't stay saved by your own righteousness. You are in Christ going to persevere unto the end if you have had a genuine work of grace in you. But there are people who they look like they're saved, and they act like they're saved, and they may even occupy pulpits. I know a couple of them, myself, who for years have occupied pulpits, they're self-identified atheists today that are as aggressive and evangelistic in their atheism as they ever were for God. And I trust that they will one day repent, but it may be that they have committed this unpardonable sin where they've gone beyond the point where they have resisted God and they've sinned against great light. Can a Christian commit the unpardonable sin? No, but it is possible to be deceived and think you're a Christian and you're not. Again, Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation or judgment to come for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you're born again, there's no judgment to come that is condemnation, judgment to come. There's a beam of seat, that's something different. Salvation doesn't depend on our own righteousness. Here's another question. Can you reach a point where you want to be saved and you cannot? Well, it's God who gives us the desire to be saved. He gives us the gift of repentance and a desire to be saved because we're depraved. We don't have that. We're like, help, I've fallen, I can't get up. It's God who gives us that desire. So if whoever's whoever will, the Bible says, may come. So if you will, you may come. It's that simple. If you have a desire to be saved, you can be saved. It would be evidence that you haven't crossed a line with God of, of the point of no return. In other words, they often say people that are concerned about this They don't need to be concerned that they've committed the unpardonable sin. They certainly must be concerned about their soul. But they wouldn't need to be concerned, perhaps, about committing the unpardonable sin because they have that concern, and the concern may be evidence. However, you don't want to confuse that concern with remorse over your sin. Because it's possible to be remorseful about your sin, hate your sin, be disappointed about your sin, hate the results of your sin, but not find a place of real, genuine repentance. And there are people like that. They admit they've made a mess of their life, but they will not repent. They are not. They're willful in their sin, and they will not repent. And so they think their sadness and their sorrow and their grief over their sin is repentance, but it's really not because they still willfully resist yielding to God, admitting to who, who Jesus is. The presence of that desire may be evidence of the working of the Lord. Is it still possible to commit the unpardonable sin? Now, some people who are solid Bible scholars will say no. The only time you could have committed the unpardonable sin was when Jesus was on earth. And I, I don't agree, although I'm talking, those are some pretty bright people who think that. This would be an area where we're kind of arm wrestling that thing. But I, don't think, I think it is possible, and the reason I think it's possible to c- commit that sin or one just like it is because of other warnings in the Bible. There are other warnings in the Scripture that are kind of like crossing the line with God warnings. They're very serious warnings. Hebrews 6 is one of them. It's not our text today, so I've got to move because I know you. I don't want to uh, overstay my welcome with you. But in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, you've got this amazing passage that looks like these people are almost saved. Taste of the heavenly gift. They've been enlightened. They've seen they have great light, and yet... They turn away. It's like with Jewish people, this would be very common. That's why the book of Hebrews written to these people. And look what you've been looking at. And they just like, I can't. They can see who Jesus is. Spirit you know, is at work around them. They, they, they have great light, and yet 
they turn back. And this is a person. Now, Jesus is going to warn, use a little uh, story a little bit later on, a little illustration a little bit later on that's very much like Hebrews 6. He says, it's almost like you had a demon, and then you cast him out and clean out the house, and then... But after a while, because you didn't really believe, a bunch of demons came in, and, and at the end it was worse than at the beginning, and that's what your generation is like. You see that? Let me make this very clear. If you've been taught the truth, and you have a Bible, and you have a praying mother, or you have a faithful pastor that's tried to preach the gospel to you, or you wandered down the street, and some preacher preached the truth to you, and you heard it, but you willfully rejected it, you are in such danger because you're sinning against light that God has given to you. This is very serious. Rome, uh, Hebrews 10 talks about it as well. And another warning, and we'll, we'll teach this another time. Here you have Esau who had remorse, he had regret, he had misery as a result of sin, but he didn't repent. And he had done this. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24, read it on your own, is a serious warning very much like this. So, in other words, is it still possible to commit this sin? Well, one like it, the sin or one very like it, very much like it, is warned about throughout the Bible. I would just say to you, I wouldn't gamble about that. I wouldn't do any fancy exegetical footwork around it. I would just get right with God and repent and seek God and know as soon as you can. You're sitting under the sound of the gospel today. God gave his son, the Lord Jesus, who never sinned, to live a sinlessly perfect life on his way to the cross to die for the sins of unworthy, sinful people like us. He was buried and he rose again. He's in heaven and he will return one day to, re- to receive to himself those who believe. Do you believe? You've heard the gospel today because I just told you the gospel. Do you believe? It's that simple. Will you willfully say, no, I'll be my own God, or will you humbly say, God, you be my God. I believe your son Jesus is God. I believe the Holy Spirit revealed Jesus to be God. I receive Jesus as my own Savior. Is it possible to commit the unpardonable sin? I think so. And then is the sin of the, unto death the same thing as the unpardonable sin? I'm skipping this, but that will give you a reason. Never miss a message because I might teach that in the future and you want to know it. And how do I know if I've committed this sin? Uh, you'll know that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but you won't care. You'll know that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but you won't care. You'll be able to point back to times when you were enlightened and where you're drawn and where people warned you, but you won't care. You'll willfully persist in living your own way without a desire to submit your life to Christ. There are people that I meet that seem like this. I'm not their judge, and I don't want to be their judge, but you just look in their eyes, and it's just like hollow behind their eyes. They may be brilliant people, but they have no spiritual interest. It's like they sit and one person will listen to a message, and they'll be moved. I had a call this week from Eldon Brock. He's like 86 years old, used to run Lake Ann Camp, Godly guy, loves the Lord. Call me on the phone. He's going to go golf. He lives in a retirement village in Florida, and he's served the Lord all of his life, and he's a sweet spiritual guy. He called me on the phone, and he said, I was going to go golfing, and my toe hurt. So I stayed home, and I looked at my computer, and I saw that you had posted a message by Francis Chan from Founders Week. So I stayed home, and I watched that message, and it broke my heart. And it made me think, oh, God, I've been out on the edges of your work, and I want to be in the heart. Now, he hadn't been in the edges of God's work, I don't think. This man is a faithful guy who over 85 years serving the Lord, still today trying to serve the Lord in the best way he knows how. Got a website up, and he's doing missions. He's traveling to Myanmar. The guy loves the Lord. But you see what I'm trying to say? He's 80-some years old, but his heart is still tender to God. 
He can still listen to a message and go, God, is that true about me? Oh, God, how I want to serve you. You see, that's the way people are who have the Spirit of God living in them. They're easy to be entreated. They love the things of God. They fear God. They respect God. But others, they just sit there and they listen and the truth washes over them and ignore again. They resist God. That's a scary place to be. Don't do that. How do you know if you committed this sin? You just don't care. It, it, Burkhoff said this. Burkhoff was a theologian. said, in Those who have committed this sin, we may therefore expect to find a pronounced hatred to God, a defined attitude toward Him, and all that's divine, delight in ridiculing and slandering that which is holy, absolute unconcern respecting the welfare of their soul in the future life. In view of that fact... This sin is not followed by repentance. We may be reasonably sure that they who fear that they have committed it and worry about it and who desire the prayers of others for them have not committed it. You care about that. But many just don't care. And they they aren't spiritually concerned. And they have great light. And if you're in that category, or if you have loved ones in that category, can I commend you to think about the justice of God the holiness of God, the demands of God, until you desperately want the gospel to be true. And then if you're on the other part where you feel so condemned because of the dark temptations you have or the shameful past you have, can I tell you about Jesus, his great mercy, his love that's like the sunrise every morning. He so draws you to himself. He said, I'll provide all the righteousness that you need. Ah, he's so wonderful. Why wouldn't you just want to worship him every week and read your Bible every day and do everything you can to serve him because he's a merciful God? Is this a judgment or a warning? Well, I'm not sure. I think, it's a, I think Jesus is saying to the Pharisees as a whole, as a nation, I think he's saying you cross the line. Or maybe warning them because they're going to crucify him later, that he realizes that's what's going to happen and covenantally. Very much like our nation, we say to God, God, we want you to bless us. We'll stand on the steps of the you know, Capitol building, and say, God bless America, just don't come to our schools. We're not going to let kids pray. We'll, get, we'll stand there, we'll say, God bless America. We'll hit the ball game. We'll stand up, you know, in patriotism, kind of mixing God in, in the flag, you know, wrapping ourselves in a flag. We'll say, God bless America, but we'll say, just don't, but you can't, we don't want the Ten Commandments in our courts. We'll say, God bless America. Hey, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to tell you. There are Christians in the court system, and there are Christians in the public school system. Thank God for it. And they belong. That's where God wants them to be. God sent them to go there. That's their pulpit. It's a place. People get saved as a result of that. Thank God. That's what I'm saying, right? It's when we covenantally are rejecting God. This nation covenantally is turning away from God and rejecting Jesus. And Jesus says, is that what you really want? Then the whole church age is going to flower and explode out of that, which is good for us. But do you understand, because of these Pharisees being the ruling party and them rejecting Jesus, there are going to be millions of Jewish people that are going to suffer. Same as my friends who used to be pastors, who now blaspheme God. I was looking at their faces, I think. Your poor wife, how how does she pray at nighttime? And your kids, what's going to happen to your kids? can't have bearings anymore. You know, dads walk away from God. What about the people you're going to influence, the people that you're responsible for? Are you so confident in your new religion that you can reject God that you don't even care about? These Pharisees had a place, a position of, of power, of religious power, and they are responsible. Jesus cuts them no slack. He is extremely direct with them. 
And he's so sympathetic to hurting sinners, you know, broken harlots and people that are just broken with their sin. He's so patient. He's so loving. He's so merciful to them because they know they need forgiveness and he's so willing to offer it. And these religious guys that were responsible for turning a nation away from God, oh, he came down hard on them. No, I think for many of them it was a warning. It was a statement of judgment for the people around. It was a warning, just like today. Let me go through this. Think about what the Bible teaches about sins against the Spirit. The Bible says a believer can quench the Spirit. The Bible says a believer can grieve the Spirit. You can't grieve somebody that doesn't love you, right? You grieve your mother. His Spirit loves you, and we can grieve him. Perhaps we do it often. It talks about that in Ephesians. The way we treat other people can grieve the Spirit. believer can do that. But then in Zechariah, it talks about quieting the Spirit. It's like, shut up. We tell the Spirit to be quiet. Wow. God's going to speak. We're going to interrupt him? Really? Wow. But we do that. Come down listening, God. Um, Stephen said to the ones who are telling him, you always resist the Spirit. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and hardened ears. You're resisting God. Don't resist him. Because if you quiet the Spirit and you resist the Spirit, then the next thing you might do is, is Hebrews talks about insulting the Spirit. It was just talking about, in Hebrews, is the passage, this, this rich, rich book, talking about who Jesus is. And the best way I can describe this, imagine that you're seeing a girl, and you've been maybe seeing her for years, three, four years, and you saved up money for this beautiful, beautiful diamond ring, and you got the most expensive ring you could get. And you hired an orchestra, and you, and you got reservations at a fancy restaurant, and there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful, uh, there's a beautiful um, curtain there, and just at the right time in this darkened restaurant, the curtain opens, and the orchestra begins to play, and you get down on your knee, and you open up this box with a ring in it, and you, you put it in front of her face, and you say, you know, I offer my life to you, my love to you, my, my lifelong loyalty to you, and she says, can you get some more light, because I want to order an appetizer here. And God has sent His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to offer His mercy to us. And He's courted us in the sunrise and in the sunset and in the birdsong and in the flowers and in meals and in a warm home and loving people. In our life, for years He's shown us His love and He actually takes a God of the universe, takes a knee and offers to us His Son, Jesus. And then we say to Him, well, I'll think about that. What an insult to God. What an insult. It is. And so the insult, and then we move beyond that to the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So in the light of this, what should we do? Well, we should be serious people. We should be sober people. We should be God-fearing people. We should warn everybody we know in the most gracious but the most severe way. We know how to warn them. The reality of a living God is a fearful thing to ha- fall in the hands of a living God. A God is a consuming fire. But he's so merciful and so willing to forgive. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us your word, the Bible. We have tried this morning, Lord, to just give attention to these two verses that your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, spoke on earth. And they've been captured here in the Bible and been reminding us of this. And we've tried to warn the people. And Lord, today, you know, I've tried to offer the forgiveness that you've 
authorized us as preachers of the gospel to offer the, the mercy and yet at the same time the warning. I pray that people wouldn't get their signals crossed and that people that need to see your justice and holiness will not skip ahead to your mercy. And the people that need to see your mercy wouldn't see you, God, as only eager to judge them. So I pray in this work of the Spirit, you do your work among people today, and that one day we would see the fruit of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.